All right. How are you guys doing? You know, uh, last night, um, my little one, you know, came and woke me up at like three in the morning saying she was having nightmares. And as a good father, this is for you guys who are, who are ba- dedicating your child. As a good father, the best thing to do is to say, you realize this is daylight savings and I'm losing an hour of sleep. Um, <laughs> I only thought that. I didn't say it. <laughs> hey, well, we are starting a new series. Um, we're calling it Jesus Is. And this is our a series where each week we're going to basically have a, a case study, a look at who Jesus is. We're going to be look at, looking at each week different characteristics of Jesus, different aspects of his character, different things that define who Jesus is. And today we're going to be talking about like a, a really fundamental one, a really big one. And we're going to be talking about Jesus is God. But before we jump into that, I want to talk to you guys just for a second about a phenomenon that's been happening more and more often in my life. And I'm sure actually many of you guys have experienced this as well, but it's, it's the phenomenon of running into people in public that you only know through social media. Have you guys had this happen? Where you, you, you come in contact with someone and you know them, but you don't know them? Like, you know that they just got back from vacation, and, and you know that, you know, they just got a new job, and you know their entire voting history and everything they think about politics, but you don't know them. This happened to me just a couple days ago. I was, I was out, and I ran into a gal who we've been connected for a long time. I think we just celebrated our nine-year Facebook anniversary. Um, <laughs> But we, we, I ran into this gal, and, and we, we you know, approached each other to say hi, and, and I, I knew all about her little kid. I knew about her job. I knew that they just went on vacation. I knew about her husband, about so many things about her. But I realized as we started talking, I had never heard her voice. And it was kind of, it was kind of weird to me. I was like, oh, that's what she sounds like. And I realized there was a huge difference between knowing about someone and actually knowing someone. I remember taking sociology courses in college, and they would talk about that, 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 that point that people, you can know about people, you can know a lot about people, but there's a fundamental difference in knowing someone. And the thing that I think is interesting is the same thing can be true about God. The same thing is true with many of our relationships with God. And and, and I know a lot of people would know a lot of things about God. Right? Maybe you grew up in a church where you were taught um, a lot of things. You were taught the Bible really well, and and you know know, so many things about who God is and, and the things that have happened in the course of history relating to God. But if you were honest, you would say, but I don't know if I really know him. It's like those folks on Facebook where we know things about them, but 
We never really sat down and talked with them or had life experiences with them or shared a meal together. See, God is not just inviting us into knowing facts about him. He's not inviting us to learn more and more about him. He's actually inviting us into a relationship with him. God is a knowable God. And he's desiring for each and every one of us a relationship. He desires relationship with you. And it's important that, we, that we, we, we understand that, that God wants relationship with him. But in saying that, it is also extremely important that we know things about him as well. I'm not saying that the learning about him is unimportant. In fact, it's very, very important. Let me give you an example. The point of my marriage with my wife, Lara, is that we would, we would experience and live and, and, and you know, have connection with one another. But if I don't know when her birthday is, I'm in trouble. October 11th, just in case. Just in case you're listening, Lauren. Right? I need to know things about her. I need to know you know, what her favorite flower is. I need to know what foods she doesn't like and what foods she does like, the things that bother her, the things that, that um, you know, give her passion, the things that she's excited about. I need to know, like, her favorite shows and, and, and the things that I do that bother her. Those things are important. Those things are important because they help me to connect with her. And the same is true about God. Yes, we're called to relationship with him. But in order to build that relationship, it is important that we, we know the things that he cares about. We know the things that offend him. That we know what he is passionate about. And so often, those two realities of, of you know, theology and truth and learning about God and, and, and knowing more about him and, and, and relationship with him and experience with him, they often get pitted against each other, don't they? Like it's either one or the other. And I, and I, would, I would guess that many of us, probably most of us, have that leaning of which one we would fall into more often than not. Some of us love theology. Some of us love a good Bible study where we learn about Jesus. And others would say, oh, we love experiencing God's presence. We love just that, that, that being filled up with his presence. And let me just say, they both need to happen. They both feed off of one another. And that tension is actually where the vineyard was born. That is a huge value within the vineyard movement is that we love the evangelical tradition of knowledge and truth and scripture and, and all of those things. We value it. It's important to know and to study, but we also value the charismatic tradition of experiencing God and knowing him and, and getting to, to have a, 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 a real interaction with him. They're both important. And the reason that I, I'm saying all this is as we enter 
these 40 days of prayer and fasting, the, the Lenten season, which are the, the days leading up to the celebration of Easter, where we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus, I want to I encourage you to really make the most of it. For me, I've only been really observing the Lenten season and making it a practice in my life for about five years. And let me say, it is it is changed my life. It really has. Some of the most significant times with the Lord that I've ever had has been in this season. Some of the clearest I've ever heard his voice has been in this season of 40 days. I've had vivid dreams from the Lord. I've had things awaken in scripture that I never noticed in these 40 days. So I want to encourage you to really make it a part of, of, of your life over the next 40 days to participate. But one of the issues is I believe there's been a huge misconception within the church about what the 40 days of prayer and fasting are, what the Lenten season are, and what like, the disciplines are like fasting and, and all, Sabbath and all those kind of things. I think there's this misconception that it's about duty and obligation and maybe even punishment. Right? We do these things so that God will love us. Or we do these things because you know, we're sinful people and we need to discipline ourselves. But that's not the point of it at all. That's not the point. The point of the 40 days, the point of discipline in our life is they're like rhythms. They're like rhythms that we, we put into our life that every great relationship has rhythms. Do you know that? Every great re- relationship has rhythms. Like me and my wife have a date night. It's a rhythm that we say, hey, let's, let's make sure we are connecting. That we're taking time out of our busy schedules because we can easily just be like two ships passing in the night. But we take time to connect. Or like a weekly card game you have with your buddies. Or like that monthly meeting uh, at Panera that you meet, you meet your friends for breakfast or, or your small group or whatever it is. They are these rhythms that we put in our life to facilitate, to build relationship. And so the point of the 40 days of prayer and fasting, the point of you know, fasting and disciplines in general is to help facilitate relationship with Jesus, to create spaces, to create pathways, if you will, to get to know Jesus better. And let me say this, don't don't approach the 40 days with like this feeling of guilt or shame or obligation. I know that you know, I, re- I, I really want to encourage you to stretch yourselves and, and to try to participate, but don't, don't go into it feeling like, uh, like this overwhelming sense of, oh gosh, how am I going to do this? Like Jesus is aware of different seasons in our life. Jesus is aware that, you know, you single mother, that you, you know, you don't have the eight hours a day that maybe a retired guy has. Right, so, so start off with, with a, a feeling of grace that I, I can do this much. And maybe stretch yourself, but this is, this is what I can do. Don't, you know, I'm going to spend the next 40 days in a monastery. Might be a little much. 
So approach it with grace. So over the next 40 days, we have some resources for you. We have, like Michael was saying, we have a booklet in the lobby that is full of uh, information about what fasting is. What is it? Why do we do it? It has, has stuff in there about you know, why we pray and how we pray, and it has scripture reading plans, and it has uh, these, these, these community prayer times where, where we will pray as a church about certain topics. And the booklet is both. It's informational to help us grow in our knowledge, but it's also helping us connect with Jesus. And also, like Michael said, we have these events that are going to happen every Friday leading up to Easter, culminating in Good Friday. And every one of these events, they're going to be informative, or there's going to be some teaching in it, but they're also going to be experiential. There's also going to be aspects about them that are going to be relational, or maybe we're relating to one another, or maybe we're relating to God, but they're both, the both and, the relationship and the learning. And so I really want to encourage you to take time, carve time out of your schedule to make it to these events. They're going to be really, really powerful. But also during the 40 days, we're going to be doing this sermon series. Jesus is. Because, like I said, the point of the 40 days is not to focus on the discipline, not to focus on the the fasting, but it's to focus on Jesus. The point of the 40 days is to see Jesus more clearly. So we are going to look every week at Jesus. And like I said, we're going to be today looking at Jesus is God. And so before we jump in, let me just pray. Lord, we acknowledge your presence here this morning. I thank you that you are with us. I thank you that you are speaking And I pray that you open our eyes and open our ears to you this morning. Amen. All right. So I want to start off by asking you the most important question that you'll ever be asked. Can I borrow 20 bucks? No, it's not it. I don't need money. I want to ask you the question that is the most important question in the entire universe. And it's the question, who do you say that Jesus is? I want you to just take a moment in your mind. Who do you say that Jesus is? This is a question that in in the book of Matthew, chapter 16, Jesus asked his followers, who do you say that I am? They answered, you know, some say that you are one of the prophets. Some say that you're this. Some say that you're that. And he said, well, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? The great author A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What you think about God, who you think he is, how you think he thinks about you, 
What you think about Jesus is the most important thing about you. It is the, the, most, um, the most important thing that you can answer in this life. All these things that our culture tells us, uh, defines us, and, and, and to certain degrees they do, like, like gender and, and, and race and sexuality and economics and politics and all these things that we say define us, don't define us as much as answering that question, what we say and what we think about Jesus. So I ask you again, what and who do you say that Jesus is? In our culture, most people, did you know most people have a, a pretty favorable opinion about Jesus? Inside and outside the church. Most people have a pretty, pretty positive look at Jesus. You'll rarely run into someone who's like, I think Jesus was a jerk. Most people have a pretty positive look. I mean, Gandhi used to say, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. That's kind of a, a popular view, is I don't like the church. I don't like organized religion. I don't like, I don't like Christians. I don't know about all of this Christianity stuff, but I like the teachings of Jesus. Have you heard something like that? Like, Jesus was all right, but I don't know about, I don't know about all this stuff about Christianity. But here's the thing. I think so many of us have these incorrect ideas of who Jesus is. I think you have all of these people who have all of these different ideas of, well, I think Jesus is about this. I think Jesus cares about this. I think Jesus is this. And I remember hearing one time this quote about if God you know, cares about all the things that you care about, and if he hates all the things that you hate, there's a good chance that you've created him in your image. And I think that's the problem oftentimes. I think most people have a positive outlook on Jesus because they've kind of created Jesus in their image. And Jesus ends up caring about the things that they care about. So I think it's important that we don't create Jesus out of our image, but we go right to the source. Who does Jesus say he is? Because we could all day say, well, I think Jesus cares about this. Well, no, I think Jesus think, cares about this. And we could, we could go back and forth. But if we look to the source, what does the Bible say? Who does Jesus actually say he is? And one of the most important verses in all of the, the Bible is John chapter 5, verse 58. And if you want... Jot that down, underline that verse in your Bible, highlight it, because I think that is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. And this is where people are asking Jesus, who are you? Who are you? And Jesus' response is like, I'll just read it. He says, very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. So the implications of what Jesus is saying in this, this verse are huge. 
gets a little lost in translation, but they're huge. See, Abraham, he was the founder of the, the Jewish religion, and it was the Jewish leaders who were asking Jesus this question, who are you? And he's, I mean, he is saying, listen, before the founder of the Jewish religion was around, I was. He was saying that, but that's not all he was saying. This, this phrase, I am, is extremely important. Before Abraham, I am. It had huge implications. Huge implications. And actually, Jesus was referring back to, to something that we read in the Old Testament. Back in Exodus chapter 3, remember the story about Moses and the burning bush? We've all seen either the Ten Commandments or, or you know, uh, what's the cartoon one, Prince of Egypt? We've seen the movies. We know Moses and the burning bush. Moses comes to the burning bush, and, and it's God. God is, is speaking to Moses and saying, I'm calling you to lead the Israelites. I'm calling you to do these things. And, 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 and Moses asks God this question. He says, well, who should I tell him has sent me? Who sent me? Who should I tell him you are? And God says to Moses, he says, this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This was the name that God gave himself. I am. See, back in in the ancient world, there really wasn't a name for God. It was, he, was, he was so holy, so feared that you couldn't even speak his name. And so he said, I am is my name. And this phrase, I am, there's so many cool things. I wish I could dive deep into just that phrase, but it, it's so cool. It means I always was, I am now, and I always will be. I am what everything else exists for. Like, I define everything else. I am. Everything exists in light of me. This phrase, I am, is huge. So when Jesus said, I am, he was saying, I'm God. I am God. And you see the, if you read further in the story in John, the, the religious leaders freak out. This is, this is blasphemy to them. This is offensive beyond belief. So they, they pick up stones. They're going to kill him. And Jesus, you know, r- runs away and they, they leave. But this is offensive to the, 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 the religious people of the day. That Jesus was saying, I am God. And so this statement that Jesus made here and he made multiple times in his life is very important because this statement makes it so that you can't just say, I like his teachings. I like like what he talked about. C.S. Lewis would talk about this thing called the great trilemma. It's like the great dilemma but trilemma he said because of the claims that Jesus made about himself because Jesus claimed to be God it leaves us with three options of who he is and the first one is that he is lie he's a liar 
That maybe Jesus is a liar and, and that he's just an evil man who's trying to trick people. Or the second one is that Jesus was a lunatic. He's just a crazy guy, just spouting out all these weird things. Or he was Lord. He really was who he said he was. Lewis would say he was either liar, lunatic, or Lord. And so he'd say, listen, you can't just say that you like his teachings. Because he didn't, his teachings say, I'm God. I'm God. And even, even the most famous atheist writers, the most famous atheist thinkers, they would agree with this. Christopher Hitchens, who's maybe the leading atheist thinker in, in the world, and he makes it his life mission to make Christians look really dumb and oftentimes succeeds. But he says he agrees. He says, listen, Jesus, you have to discount everything he says or he was God. There's really not anything in between. And he would say, and I think, I think he's crazy. But who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that he is? See, Jesus was different than every religious leader. Every major religion, Jesus was so different than the, than the founders of every other major religion. Muhammad, Buddha, all these people. Jesus was so different. See, those people came and said, I can show you the way to God. I can show you truth. Truth has been revealed to me. I can show you. But Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, I am God. I don't, I don't lead you to God. I am God. He says, I am not showing you the way. I am the way. I'm not telling you the truth. I am the truth. Who do you say that Jesus is? Do we have any U2 fans? Is anyone like Bono? I like, I like U2. Just a few of you guys? Oh, man. Listen to what Bono says. Bono was asked in an interview, or in an interview, you know, the interviewer said, you know, Christ has his rank among the world's great thinkers, but son of God, isn't that far-fetched? Bono says, no, it's not far-fetched to me. Look, the secular response to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy, had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius, but actually Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off that hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me a teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I am God incarnate. So what you're left with is either God was who, who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. I mean, we're talking nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. I'm not joking here. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half of the globe would have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase? Well, for me, that's far-fetched. 
think Bono was on to something. The same thing that, that, that C.S. Lewis was saying, the same thing actually that, that Christopher Hitchens was saying, and the same thing that we're saying, that, that listen, he either was God or he wasn't. And if he's not God, then, then his teachings are, are, are invalid. And so if Jesus is God, if we believe that he is God, what does that mean for us? What does it mean? How should that affect our lives if Jesus is God? Well, well in all kinds of ways, but one, if Jesus is God, then he deserves our praise. Then we must worship him. We must fall on our knees and praise him. And not just with our songs, but with our lives. If Jesus is God, then it has to be, it has to change the way that you live. If Jesus is God, then, then Jesus and his teachings need to be the central thing in our life. If Jesus is God, it should affect every part of our life. It has to change the way we act, change the way we think, change who we are. Again, C.S. Lewis says this. He says, if Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance, the only thing it cannot be is moderately important. If Jesus is God, then he can't just be a part of our life. If Jesus is God, then he's not just God on Sunday mornings. He's also God when no one's looking. He's also God over our checkbooks. He's also God over the, our, our, our relationships, our sexuality. He's also God over every aspect of our lives, and there is no part of our life that we say, this is off limits to you. If Jesus is God, then it has to be the most important thing in our life. Right? Jesus talked about this too. He said, listen, you either have to be hot or cold. Because if you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out. He's, the idea, he's saying the idea of being a, like kind of a casual Christian, like I think I believe it, but I still kind of do what I want. Jesus is saying, no, you, you can't live that way. If, if, if Jesus is God, then it has, to, it has to change everything that we believe and everything that we do. So, here's the, here's the rub, here's the problem. I don't know how many times in my life I have, you know, come to a conclusion like this, like, oh God, you're, you're the most powerful and you deserve my affection and my attention and you deserve my, my life and so I'm living for you. I'm gonna do what you say, I'm living for you and I pull my bootstraps up and I go for it and then I fail almost immediately. And I forget. And why is that? 
See, I think it's important that we, we come to that conclusion. I think it's important that we, we declare and we confess, oh yeah, Jesus, you are God and I'm following you. I think that is extremely important. But the reason that we fail is going full circle. The reason that we fail is because knowledge, our theology is not enough. Just believing that Jesus is God is only gonna get you so far. To say, Jesus, you're God, and so I'm gonna live for you is backwards. It's not gonna work. See, we talk about this in the gospel of wholeness. We say, we believe that obedience sometimes, we believe that obedience is gonna lead us to intimacy, but it doesn't. Obeying God doesn't get us God. It doesn't. The reality, what scripture teaches, is that intimacy with God leads to obedience. That when we connect with Jesus and we have intimacy with him, that leads actually to dependency on him. We begin to trust him and that leads to obedience. So how then do we make Jesus the most important thing in our life? It's by looking at him. It's by experiencing him. It's by observing his beauty. 2 Corinthians chapter three, Paul says this, he says, and we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed in the same image of from one degree of glory to another. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying is when we behold, when we come into the beauty and glory and wonderful you know, character of Jesus, when we behold him, we, we begin to be transformed. from one degree of glory to the next. I love that phrase, one degree of glory to the next. It's like it tells us that there's a progression. Like it just doesn't all happen instantly. It's like this lifelong journey of, of, of being transformed from one degree to, to, to the next. How many times in your life have you just run into some maybe sin issue or, or you know, addiction or something that was an issue in your life and you just can't get past it no matter how hard you try? How many times? I mean, that happens over and over again in my life. And I will tell you, the freedom that I have found in those areas don't come from trying harder. The freedom that I, that I have found in my life has, be, has come out of behold, getting my eyes on Jesus and letting him transform me from the inside out. And so the, the, the way that we make Jesus, the thing that we are living for, the thing that we are submitted to, the thing that is central and all other things in our life revolve around is by beholding him and letting him transform us. Jesus is God, but he is a noble God. 
He desires to be known. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? I mean, think about, think about what that means. This God, the God who created the universe, the God who in the Old Testament was looked at, you couldn't even speak his name, that there was this fear. And I'm not, when I say fear, I don't want you to necessarily think of like running away scared of him, although that's close. But it's this, this awe and reverence and like, you are holy. Have you ever experienced that? I mean, I know within the vineyard, we talk a lot about how he's our buddy and, and how he's our father and all of these things, and those things are true. But we don't talk a lot about the reverence of God being so other and so holy. I remember my wife had this experience that drastically changed her life. She, when we were dating... She went to England for a little bit. And she went to Westminster Abbey, which is a beautiful cathedral. Uh, it's you know, over a 1,000 years old. And the, the ancientness of this building, the, the, the amount of prayers that were prayed in that building, the ornateness of it, like really drew something out of her, this reverence of God that was like, wow, he is holy. And I remember talking to her and she said, JT was the weirdest thing. It was almost like a fear. It was almost like a fear. And I'm reminded of in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Lucy was talking about Aslan. Aslan was a representation of Jesus. And she finds out that Aslan is a lion. And she's like, oh, he's a lion? Well, is he safe? And the answer is, no, he's not safe. But he's good. There's this reverence of God. If Jesus is that God, then he deserves our reverence, our awe, our wonder. I love John chapter 1. John chapter 1 is a, a kind of a callback to Genesis chapter one, the story of creation. We know the story, in the beginning, God created the heavens. We, we, we've heard that. But John kind of calls back to it. And he says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. I want you to hold on to that phrase. The word was with God, and the word was God. He, meaning the word was a he, he was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word has become flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. When the Apostle John is writing this, we see that he's calling Jesus the Word. And that word, Word, this is a confusing sentence, and I've tried to think of a better way to say it. But the word, Word, is the Greek word, logos. Do you, do you track what I'm saying in that? The, the word word is the Greek word logos. 
And that word logos is, is a intense word. It means the, the divine logic, the, the creative reason, the, the source of everything in the universe, the glue that holds everything together, the thing that all things come from. The logos, the word, the, the, the order in the universe was Jesus, the Apostle Paul was saying. And again, saying Jesus isn't just pointing to God. He is God. He is the glue. He is the, the, the thing that holds all things together. And so if he is the logos, if Jesus is the creative logic, the order, the, the glue, the, the reason if he is the I am, then, then the, the question or the answer to every one of life's questions is Jesus. I remember Sunday school when I was a kid, we always would joke around that if you didn't know the answer to a question that your teacher was asking, just say Jesus and there's a good chance you might be right. There's actually some truth to that. Jesus is the answer to every big question that we're asking. He is the I am. Why do I exist? What's the reason that I'm here? Jesus says, I am. I am. I am the reason. Where, where can I find life? Where do I find purpose? Where's the place that I can go? Jesus says, I am. I am the place that you can go. Well, what do I do? Where, where am I supposed to go? Where is this all headed? Where, where's the place that we should focus? And he says, I am. The answer to the questions of, of why we're here, what we're called to do, where, where we're supposed to focus, the answer, my friends, is Jesus he says, I am the logos, I am the logic, I am the glue that holds the universe together. I am. So again, I ask you, who do you say that Jesus is? This is the question. And so here's how I want to end. Can, can we bow our heads? I believe there might be some people here who have never really accepted that. You may be one of those folks that we were talking about that says, you know, I like the teachings of Jesus. But you've never really accept him, accepted him as God in your life. And I want to give you an opportunity to not only do that, to say, I believe that you're God and I want to I make you central in my life, but also to join in that relationship, to begin to know him. So I'm going to just say a quick prayer. And if you want, if you want to enter into that relationship, then I just want to encourage you to, to say this prayer with me. And you can make my words your words, or you can make them 
Um, you can say them in your own way, but, but Jesus, I just say right now that you are God. I believe it. And I want to give you my life. I want to make you central in my life. And I don't know what the implications of that are. I don't know what that looks like. But I want to begin that journey today. And I want to enter into that relationship with you. And I want to begin to get to know you, Jesus. And so as we keep our heads bowed, if you prayed that with me for the first time, if you just said yes to Jesus for the first time today, can you just raise your hand? If you just said that prayer with me, just raise your hand so I can see it. Bless you. Bless you. Let's just stay in this, this, this space. Sir, you can come on up. I think God is, is, is doing some business here today. I think there's a, a lot of us who would say that um, we have believed the right things, but it hasn't filtered into our whole life. That there are things that we know have either been consciously or subconsciously kind of off limits for God. And we've been living and behaving in certain ways that you know, aren't of God and from God. And I think today God wants to do some business and just for you to come and say, God, I, I surrender this to you. That you're the God of my life. And I think there's also a lot of people here who have been living their life um, out of kind of that duty and obligation and trying to do the right things. And you've been neglecting the relationship side of it. And God just wants to say, I want, I, want to, I want to love on you today. So here's how we're going to end. Why don't we, why don't we stand up? We're going, to, we're going to sing one last song. And I just want to encourage you as we sing this song, um, let's give God, let's give Jesus the praise he deserves. I know a lot of times we kind of, this is the last song, we're just kind of waiting until we can leave. Um, but I just want to, let's praise him. Let's praise the I am. And if you felt like there was some stuff that God was highlighting in your heart or in your life, I want to invite you forward to come receive prayer. And, and really quick, I just want to give a little, coming forward is not magical. We don't believe that this space is more holy than where you are, but there is something really kind of supernatural that happens when our physical body, you know, does what our, our hearts need to do, like to come forward and respond to Jesus. And it's also, I want to say, it's not a sign of being wrong or being bad. It's a sign of, it's a good thing. It's saying yes to Jesus. So coming forward and receiving prayer and responding, we just want to make it a culture in our church.